I'm not the kind of person that, yeah, I'm not motivated by what people say I can and cannot do or what I can and cannot be. I know who I am. Um, I know whose I am. And I know is, you know, God has the final say. So I honest to God, I've never felt like anything has made me feel like, you know, go hard. I'll show you. Like, yeah, yeah. No, I was going to do that anyway. Like if you say yeah. I could do, I knew I was going to do that. So yeah, I honestly never had any of those times. There people have been telling me so many things I could do in my life and I never have been motivated by that. That's something that they said that I was an opinion and you are entitled to your opinion. But the fact of the matter is I'm going to do it. And I did it. Yo, peace world. Uh, scholarships, the podcast. Welcome back. Uh, first, I just want to say again, thank you all for continuing to repost, you know, post, tag, share, whatever. Um, anytime we, we post, it, it really means a lot to us. It helps us, uh, you know, build a, get a bigger network. And also just, you know, it feels good to kind of know that people uh, enjoy the, the work that we put in. Um, it's, it's been a long journey. Still a lot to go. Still a lot of growth to um, to, to get to. Um, if you got again, if you guys have any, you know, feedback or anything, just let us know. Yeah, still no sponsors, but you know we live. You know, so I think that's all you can really ask for. Uh, but yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about you know the Tyree Nichols situation. Um, a situation that happens all too often. I actually personally haven't seen the actual video just for you know my own mental health. Um, but I'm aware of the story and I'm aware, like I've been following, you know, the newscasters and, and the updates and things like that. Um, it's just so unfortunate that, you know, a black man again, lost his life. I mean, it's one of those things where you're never used to it and you're not numb to it, at least me. Um, but it, it, it definitely throws your week off or your day off or your year off. Um, because you always think that we have some growth in then these situations happen and you realize we have so much further to go in times like this just reminds me of you know james baldwin's quote where he says to be a negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost all the time like that always gets me because it just is still true today and it was true when he was alive um unfortunately but yeah with all that being said i mean today our guest kristen hardy um, Kristen to talk about her upbringing. She'll talk about, you know, how she has navigated the legal world. And most of all, she'll talk about knowing your worth and the importance of continuing to grow and continuing to evaluate your position in any field or profession. Um, it's a great conversation. Um, I truly learned a lot from Kristen and I, I'm so thankful that she took time to, to hop on the pod with us. So yeah, Kristen, uh, let's kick it off. Yeah, so um, first, thank you guys for having me. Um, I'm really impressed with the podcast, with both of you guys, uh, just in general, um, all the stuff that y'all have been able to do and accomplish um, as Black men, as men from the city, just, it's, I'm very impressed. I feel like I've, I've told Larry that a million times. If I haven't, I'm going to tell you again, you know, so impressed, always have been very impressed by you guys. So thanks for having me. I love the podcast. It's cute. And it's real and it's something that we need for the culture. So love it. So I'm happy to be here. Um, so Kristen, I am originally from Detroit, uh, but then I moved, we moved to the suburbs when I was, I don't know. It's hard for me to pinpoint because we moved, but I still went to school in the city for a while um, before I started going to school in the suburbs. So I didn't start going to public school in the burbs until I was in maybe seventh or eighth grade. Mm -hmm. um, before that, I was going to private school. Um, so I'm from the west side of Detroit, six in Livernois. I went to Jesu Catholic School, elementary school. It's a K through eight school. Um, lots of, Aaliyah went there. I, I wanna say it's our most famous person that went there, but probably somebody else. Lots of um, that area is where Motown legends lived in that vicinity. So lots of their children went to Jesu. Um, and actually there are at least two attorneys that I have met here in Milwaukee who went to Jesu. That's how, you know, it's still open, still around. It's a big Catholic school in Detroit. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in sixth grade, um, I moved to a suburban Catholic school, St. B. 
um, and I only went there for a year. It was a much smaller school. And then, because initially, actually, we moved to the suburbs. My mother thought, oh, I have a brother. Um, it's two of us. She thought, oh, so we don't have to pay for a private school. We can go to public school, you know, taxes help pay for these better school districts. And um, I got to the school and I was there maybe two weeks and the teacher, I was so excited about going there. I had a black teacher, a black woman teacher. It was the first time I had a black teacher. I was so excited about this. Um, and she was like, I don't know where you brought Kristen from, but send her back because they're way ahead of where we are here at this school. And if you leave her here, she is going to fall behind. That's what's gonna happen. Cause right now she's, even if I put her two grades ahead, it wouldn't be enough. Um, and that doesn't make sense from a maturity standpoint either. Um, so send her back to that school. So we had moved and then I went back to my private school. <laughs> then I went there for a couple more years, then go to the suburban school uh, at St. B. And then we moved to another suburb um, and that school kind of matched up education wise. So I went there in Farmington Hills from seventh, seventh grade through um, high school through 12th grade. Um, I was in the Farmington Hills School District. I graduated from Farmington Hills Harrison. It's now defunct, but if any Michiganders are listening, we are the most winningest football program in the state. Um, it's a well-known school. Lots of football legends have gone to the you know collegiate D1 level to the NFL level for Farmington Hills Harrison. Um, I lived in a district I could have picked schools. I picked that one uh, intentionally because... I played sports. I was, I was an athlete. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go there and, you know, be athletic um, and do whatever I do there. And then for college, I ended up going to Seton Hall University. Uh, that's in New Jersey. Um, I was recruited there. I ran track. Um, I had a scholarship. So I, I was recruited at several schools, but I picked that school because it felt like the most like home. There's at least one person on the team who's from Michigan. Um, he went to another big football school. So I felt like, oh, okay, it's like somebody I know I relate to. And then I went to Marquette for law school, uh, mainly because Marquette is like a lot like Seton Hall in a lot of ways. So you can tell that I picked this, the familiar thread. I like feeling like I'm home or like people that feel like home without me being home. But tell us about what it, what it was like growing up in Detroit and then, you know, moving out. Yeah, so, um, hmm. Growing up in Detroit, um, so I was primarily raised by my mother. So I mentioned I have a little brother. Um, and then, I, you know, I was raised with a village in the same way like many Black people are, you know. So my grandmother was integral in my, my upbringing. I mentioned even when we moved to the suburbs, I was in the city every single day. Like I can't, that's why it's almost hard for me to remember that separation. Um, I didn't go to a Detroit public school, right? I didn't graduate from any of the schools. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was always in the city because my grandmother was in the city. And at one point, I, she's the only babysitter I ever had, had was my grandmother. Uh, but even after that, it's like you are, you naturally go back to the city to see what your grandmother is doing. Um, so I had a good childhood. Jesus was an excellent school. Um, and it has those Catholic values that were instilled in me that were really important. Uh, I was always around people that looked like me. Um, so I had a good sense of who I was and what I could be. Um, my parents are blue collar. I grew up in a blue collar household. Um, but uh, my mother was the type of person, you know, it's like, all right, we start here. But when we do a little bit more, then we move up. That's why we kind of moved to different places and moved up, moved up. I'm doing a little better. We, we get a bigger house. So we had two rooms. Now we get three. You had three. Now you have four. You know, she was always striving for more and more and more. Um, which is, you know, is a great thing to instill in young children. Uh, but yeah, like I said, it was a village. Um, I never felt scared or, you know, people have a perception about Detroit like they have about Milwaukee. I never felt nervous about where I was or the mm -hmm. area that I was in, or I never, you know, saw any crazy violence. Or I think the thing I was the most scared about was uh, stray dogs. That was, as a kid, that was... <laughs> My biggest concern was like, yo, that's actually a real thing. Yeah, that that was always. I was just talking about that recently. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy growing up. Like, I don't see that anymore. But I was so afraid of the random stray dog that was gonna maul me. I wasn't afraid of people. I was afraid mm -hmm. of dogs. Mm -hmm. uh, I love dogs now, but yeah, it's different. A dog in the hood is a whole different. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Uh, so yeah, I had a good. Like I said, it was a good upbringing. Good values. I was around people. Even I was in Catholic school, but they were 
that school was probably 98% black, right? Mm. So I had this good sense of self and who I was. My parents are blue collar, but I had a black doctor. I don't even know if my mother, like I have to give her all the credit for this, but I don't know if it was so intentional in this way to where we had a black doctor and a black dentist and uh, everybody was black around me. And there's a black lawyer and there's a black accountant where she's not a black lawyer, right? She's not a black doctor but I never thought that I couldn't be those things. Mm. It wasn't like me becoming a lawyer was this, wow, amazing thing Kristen has attained. It was like, of course she did. you know. And that's how I was raised. Like, of course you can do that. That's a normal thing you can do. Why couldn't you? Mm. Uh, because we've given you all these tools. Even if we didn't have all these tools, we've given you all these things and given you all these different opportunities to at least set you up to maybe attain those things. So um yeah, and then again, we moved to the suburbs at some point too. Like, I, it's this duality that I guess a lot of Black people have this, but few of my friends have it. It's a couple of us who, one of my really good friends who lives in Chicago now, um, we went to high school together, but she grew up in the city, same as me. And it's like, we can never make it so far where you forget where you came from because that other foot is always there. Mm -hmm. So I haven't been in the city in a long time, right? But my foot is always in the city. That person... I grew up as it's all I'm never going to get too big to be little Kristen from mm -hmm. Detroit, you know, from the West side, never. Uh, and that's how deep those deeply instilled those values and roots are in me to where that's always who I'm going to be. Let's talk about, you know, your time at Seton Hall. Uh, you know, what did you study? And then also what was life like sort of balancing being, you know, a division one track athlete, plus also sort of having to carry the workload of a division one student. Yeah. So, um, I go to Seton Hall and this is like, I'm, I'm set, I graduated high school at 17. So I always say like, I have this um, moxie of a 17 year old, a little bit of arrogance of a 17 year old. I'd always been good at school. Like that was a thing that came natural to me. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a, a scientist. I want to be a forensic scientist. And they, any, if anybody played sports here, anybody listening, or either you guys play sports in college, you know, you have like a different, um, a different, uh, I forget, what, what do you call it? The person that helps you with your classes and such. Mm -hmm. Different yeah, advisor, yeah. yep. Advisor. advisor. You have a different advisor than regular students. So the athletic advisor is like, yeah, so science and math is hard for athletes because y'all have class on Fridays, but you also travel on Fridays. That's the only majors that have classes on Fridays, 8 a.m., but you usually won't be here. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm good at school, so it'll be fine. Well, it was not fine. And I was struggling. <laughs> it was the first time in life that I really struggled. So I come in as a bio major. I have labs. I got chem. I got bio. I have the labs to go with them. And I mean, I was I was struggling. I had never ever found school hard until that moment. And it's not that it was so so difficult. It was that I was missing so much of it to where it was trying mm -hmm. to play catch up. Um, and then you're balancing that with the rigorous schedule of being a Division One athlete. It's nothing like high school. Track is a hard sport anyway, but it's also a year-round sport. So literally the day I'm, I think I moved in, let's say if I moved in on a Tuesday, Wednesday, I was sitting in some kind of athletic meeting. Thursday, I was at practice. I mean, it was like, it was no rev up. They were quick, ready to go. This is your schedule. This is how it's going to be. So I was trying to juggle all those things. And I really felt like I was drowning. And I didn't know how to say I was drowning that first year, but I was. Um, so I eventually changed my major. Um, I kind of finished out that first year, feel like I wasted that first year because I'm in these high level science and math courses that count, but I didn't need classes that high for the next major. Talked to my advisor. He's like, all right, what do you want to do? I was like, I don't know. Cause I thought I wanted to be a scientist and I'm, I feel like I'm not going to make it doing this. And, you know, this is partially athletics is paying for school. Academics is paying for paying for school. I can't do bad at either of those things or I may lose my scholarships. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. And he's like, okay, um, let's look at some classes that you liked. I think I had taken a philosophy course. I was on the school paper. I was on the school paper in high school. So when I got to college, I was like, oh, I want to, how do I do that as a hobby? And they're like, yeah, you could just write on and they'll let you, you know, pick what you want to do. They'll let you do it. Cool. And he's like, oh, you found time for the paper. That's interesting. I'm like, yeah, I love to write. Like, it's, I just think it's interesting. I always thought journalism was interesting. And he's like, you like philosophy? He's like, you thought about law school? I was like, well, they've been thinking about law school for me my whole life. So I kind of don't want to do it because everybody in my family has told me I should do it. So not really. He's like, talk to the pre-law advisor. He used to be a professor at Seton Hall at the law school. Like, you know, just, just talk to him. 
had a couple conversations and then I decided, all right, going to law school. So changed my major to, we didn't have a pre-law major. So I changed my major to criminal justice uh, with a minor in psychology. I think I changed it to that because I could minor in psychology. I wanted something where I could minor in something I was interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and that's that's how I finished out my three years. So uh, that schedule was tough as an athlete, but also I'll say I have amazing discipline. I think athletes have an amazing discipline that the average person does not have. That's very difficult to learn because you don't even realize how, I didn't realize until law school how disciplined I was. Uh, I got to law school and people would complain about the reading and I'm like, it's not that deep because I used to have to get up at, you know, 4 a.m. to be ready to go for a 5 a.m. or 5.30 practice, right? And then have breakfast and then go to a class and then get to the gym and then go to class, class, then uh, your big workout. All right. Now you're in the ice bath. Now you're at dinner with friends and then you have your downtime for the day. I'm like, that was my every single day. And I did it. And you can't complain about it because that is what it is. And we're not even talking about in season where Friday you get on the bus or you get on the plane, you're leaving, you're gone until Sunday. And then you get back Sunday night, freshman year, I'm playing catch up, trying to catch up with the Friday class that I missed. And then you do it all over again. You're trying to have a social life. You're trying to have a you know, party in college. You can't, it's not the same for athletes. You are so, so disciplined. So if I set my mind to do something, I can do it because athletics really taught me that. It seems like your mom was very intentional about just the, the moves she was making uh, to better your situation and also uh, to sort of provide you exposure to black dentists and black lawyers and and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about just sort of uh, your mom and the influence she had on your upbringing uh, and where you are today? Yeah, so my mom was young when she had me. Um, She was 19 going on 20. So she was a baby herself. We kind of grew up together in a lot of respects. Um, So that's why I say I don't even know if she knew how intentional, if she was trying to be so intentional. Um, But when you are growing up yourself and trying to raise a child one you need your village you rely a lot on your village um but two you just are trying to do like what you thought wasn't done for you or could have been better you're trying to just like fix that that's honestly anybody raising kids I don't have children but I imagine that's how every parent feels you're like I didn't get this or this wasn't right so I'm gonna try to do it um so I have to give my mom I give her every chance I I have to give her all all of her flowers because she was the one like, well, my kids are going to private school because I always wanted to go to that school. That was her, right? I wanted to go to Jezu. I went to the public school on the, I'm doing this because Jezu was on this side of Six Mile and Bagley where she was on that side of Six Mile. She's like, I wanted to go to Jezu and we couldn't afford to go there. That's what I would have liked to do. So I'm sending my, if I got to, you know, penny up, get all our money together to send my kids to that school, that's what I'm going to do. Um, so it was just little things like that where she has a strong personality and I have a strong personality. She she put the fire under me to be assertive, like as a woman, as a black woman, we're both not big people. Um, so, you know, you're going to hear us and you're going to feel us, even if you can't see us all the time because we're not, you know, tall human beings. Um, she put that in me. She instilled that, you know, you get to have an opinion and your voice can be heard and again, I got to credit my grandmother because she grew up in the Jim Crow South. So all of these ideas about, like, I, I was quite militant pretty early on. And it was a amalgamation of my mother and her just naturally um, strong, assertive personality. And my grandmother, you know, just hearing her journey in the South, um, kind of growing up in that era. And then hearing, you know, even with all of that struggle that that you hear about, you know, the joy and happiness that kind of came. I grew up in a very funny family. Everybody is funny and thinks they're funny. Like everyone is always trying to make a joke and out joke the next person. Um, so it makes you witty and quick on your feet. And I mean, these women around me were so influential. Um, my paternal grandmother's a teacher. Um, so that again, I'm seeing all these these black professionals in my life who they all I don't know, put something, I have my father's demeanor um, where I'm kind of, I can be kind of cool. I'm assertive, but I can be kind of cool and I'm not going to rah-rah with you. I can, but I'm probably not going to rah-rah with you because I'm a hardy and we just like, y'all got it. Okay. Um, 
so yeah, these people have been so influential in my life, but my mother, especially, I give her so much credit because she went above and beyond and gave me so much, um, not just material wise, but she gave me plenty to make me say, I got to grow up and make money and do things because I've had all these nice things and nice experiences. I got to keep having them because my mother gave them to me, right? No one's showing me new things. She showed me and gave me all the things. Um, but also just like, you know, being a decent human being in this world. Um, and it, it keeps you grounded. It keeps me grounded to this day. So, and, and she's a huge uh, Detroit Lions fan. Yeah, she is. You she's always great. post, <laughs> you she's always post like her on the billboard. Somebody texted me today. Somebody who lives here in Milwaukee texted me. They're at the game in Detroit. Like, I just saw your mom. I'm like, I bet you did. I bet everybody sees her. I get that constantly. I bet you did. Obviously. Uh, so obviously um, you go from Detroit to Seton Hall. Um, and then when it comes time to go to, to law school, uh, you end up uh, at Marquette Law School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just talk to us a little bit about um, your time at Marquette. Yeah, so I ended up going to Marquette. I think I said earlier that one of the reasons I chose Marquette was because it reminded me a lot of Seton Hall, a place that I felt like I built family and community. And I chose Seton Hall because it reminded me a lot of my family and my community. Um, so coming here, I didn't have a lot of um, background with Milwaukee. We used to go to the Dells when I was a kid. You would kind of drive through Milwaukee, but that was it. So I didn't have any background. I didn't know a lot about the city, but I always say it was kind of God that brought me here. So take a step back, college, you're applying to different law schools, you know, you go to, what is that? The LSAC, mm-hmm. LSAC, you yeah, know, you LSAC, go to the yeah. Yeah, they have a big thing in New York. Cause so where I went to school in Jersey, I was like 15 minutes from, from Manhattan. So they had one of those big things in Manhattan and me and two of my other friends who are um, both lawyers now as well. We all went and we were like, all right, we can get these free passes to apply to different schools. And so I had applied to a bunch of schools where I had free passes and I didn't have like a dream school or anything. I just knew I was going to law school. Um, I knew I wanted to be closer to home because it was difficult when stuff would happen here in Michigan, I wasn't able to get to Michigan very quickly. You know, a ticket for Thanksgiving could be a thousand dollars. It was just ridiculous trying to get home. So I knew I wanted to be close to home, but not at home. Uh, so started applying to all these schools. And I think I was like, all right, DePaul, I was thinking about DePaul. I had, I got into Michigan state. It was kind of my fallback school, if you can believe that. And then, um, I was going to spring break. My best friend lived in LA at the time and I had a layover in Milwaukee. So I think it's still there when you get off the plane and you're walking kind of looking for food. It's that we are Marquette side. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, why not? Like, did I apply to Marquette? I can't remember if I applied to Marquette. So I applied to Marquette either when I got there. I don't know. I can't remember if it was spring break or whatever reason I was going over there, birthday, something. And I applied to Marquette when I got there. Like on the computer, you know, it was simple. The apps are kind of all the mm-hmm. same. And then I ended up getting in there. So I visited the school. I really liked it. I was like, okay, great. So fast forward, come to Marquette. Um, law school is like high school. I was not expecting that. Um, so I was like, oh, this is interesting. Um, I did high school already. <laughs> I liked high school, but I did it. I don't want to do it again. Um, mm-hmm. So, Okay. Uh, So I decided kind of at that point, I was going to focus on what I was doing. And remember, I'm going into a considerable amount of debt for the first time now. I'm like, I made this conscious decision to go into debt. So I'm like, I can't be here playing around. So that was always my attitude. I was like, it can't be high school for me because the stakes are higher because this is debt. And I need to be able to graduate. I need to have a good job and make a good living to pay these loans back. That's why Mm -hmm. I was really focused on that. Um, and also I was nervous, right? Like law school is different. Like, am I going to be good at this? I don't even know. So I was so nervous about it. I was like, I'm going to focus on studying and doing what I need to do. But I had a good experience. I eventually found my community reluctantly because I was so focused on, I don't want to hang out with y'all. Like, I think I was a one bar review in three years. Like, I don't want to do this. Y'all are getting into oh, drama. You bugging, you bugging with the one bar review. I went to, I, I think I probably missed one bar review. But <laughs> <laughs> so you like beer then. Y'all drink beer. I don't drink beer. And everything was a beer cake I, thing. No, I, I, yeah. I, I'm with you on that. The whole beer thing. And like, I, I think for me, it was more of a, 
like going to Notre Dame, I was like, I really don't know anybody. And yeah. I like going to those bar events because they kind of let their hair down, you know, mm-hmm. in some sense. And it's just like, I don't know, when you're in law school, it's, people be too damn serious. And I'd be like, yep. there's no way you're like this, like with a drinker, you know, just in a social environment. So I think it was just good for me to go there and kind of like get to know people. And, you know, so I like I really met some of my, my closest friends through that. But I think I, it's commendable that you really stuck to your guns and it was just like yo I'm in the books this is a you know I'm saying this is a job like I'm just getting my job done and I'm out it is a job it is Mm -hmm. it's a job and some of it's my own personality too like just Mm -hmm. to be clear right so I am definitely more introverted despite what anybody thinks if you know me if you are my friend you're in my world you know that like the big crowds that is not my thing like I feel like I've done it I had my party time in life. <laughs> I did that to the fullest. And then, you know, you get to an age where you're like, I do not want to do that. It actually is like, where's home? Where's the bed? Where's my two, three good friends? And we go out and hang out. So mm-hmm. some of it was, I got to focus and I can't play around because it's a lot of money at stake now, a lot of debt rather at stake. And also it's like, that's not natural in my personality at that stage. I felt like I had done everything I wanted to do on that scene. Talk to us a little bit about um, you know, graduating from law school and then, you know, landing your first job and then walk us through some of the, the career pivots that you've made to date. So I graduate law school, don't have a job. Um, and I'm like, okay, I know what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in-house after having an internship in-house. It's really what I wanted to do. That's not the normal conventional path. Um, you know, usually you got to go to the law firm. I did not want to do that. Now, let's be really clear. If someone would have handed me one of those jobs, would I have taken it? Yes, but they had <laughs> handed me one of those jobs. Uh, but that's not what I wanted to do, but I yeah. would have in the interim. So uh, there ended up being this internship at uh, a, a manufacturing company here in Milwaukee. And it was another Marquette grad who told another Marquette grad, like, hey, they're looking for, you know, a, a either a 3L or maybe a recently graduated law student to kind of do this internship. It's in the Office of General Counsel, but it's not in the legal department. Do you know anybody? And it was a paid internship. And I was like, okay, I heard about it. I interviewed for it. I got it. I'm working there doing this work. I was doing all this networking, meeting all the big players that at the time I didn't know who these people were, but now I'm like, oh, those are the big dogs that I was meeting, you know, fresh out of law school. I met, you know how it is in Milwaukee, you meet one of the the prominent black professionals here and then they introduce you to the other ones. So that happened. Someone was like, hey, you should meet this person, this person, this person. And through one of those other people, they they knew someone from some other job I applied to. I ended up getting that job. The company I was at with the internship, they were like, hey, what if we give you a full-time job instead of you leaving to take that one? And I was like, okay, all right, sounds good. Um, so I called myself negotiating my first job offer. Um, and I kind of gave them a, this is so backwards in retrospect, but I gave them like, this is my pie in the sky number and this is my low end number. And they were like, oh, we'll take that pie in the sky number works for us. And I was like, oh, that was too low. Like immediately I was like, oh, that was low. Um, I did That's that wrong. Yeah. I was like, wow, that was <laughs> not smart. I thought I was doing something, you know, because I have this other yeah. job offer, right? And I think I think the job offer at the manufacturer was like twenty or twenty-five thousand more than the other one. So I was like, oh, you know, I just thought that that was a, I had looked research and I was like, the job should be this much more, but it was just so dumb. I shouldn't have given my top number, but I did. And it worked out. They gave me what I asked for, right? It just probably wasn't high enough. Um, but I set myself back in some ways probably doing that because I ended up staying at the company for five years. Eventually networked my way, worked my way into the law department, into a new role that they had created, a legal counsel position, um, working in compliance for an attorney who I had worked for in the previous role doing some other things. Uh, so it all worked out. Uh, but I just, I laugh about that now. Like, wow, that was, I really thought I was doing something, but that was a backwards way to negotiate. See, that's the, that's the reason I asked that question though, is because people can take stuff from uh, the lessons you've learned in your career yeah. pivots, right? Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. I, I do this uh, like networking branding talk at the state bar 
And I talk a lot about, because I think networking is so cliche. We talk about it like, of course, you got to network. Blah, blah, blah. You got to brand yourself on LinkedIn. It's like, yeah, it's corny and cliche, but it means it's really important. And I am a testament to, you know, you can say what you want to say. I am not a, the kind of person that is so braggadocious. Actually, in real life, I don't care about half of this stuff. I don't care in the sense of it doesn't move me, right? Like work is work. My professional life is one thing. And I love what I do. I love working. It's going to be something I'm probably going to always do. I don't plan to do some early retirement. I like to work, right? Um, but at the same time, I am a layered human being. Um, and there are a lot more interesting things in my life than just working, right? I do volunteer work. I like to I cook, you know, and bake and hang out with my friends and travel the world. It's so much more to work. But if we're talking about LinkedIn and we're talking about networking, you, you do have to do some level of branding yourself, especially when you know you don't have the things that other people have in your in your same industry. I don't have the big law pedigree, right? Like I know that. I know I'm already coming into this with I don't have that thing. Uh, so how am I going to make up that deficit for not having? How do you know, you know, Larry, let's say you don't we don't work at the same place. How do you know that I'm smart externally? You don't, right? You never work together. You don't know me from anywhere. So how do you know that? What can I show you? Is it is it publishing articles? Is it you know being a speaker in different places? Is it um, what I'm honored by my peers with different awards? Like what is it so that you know that we're on equal footing or um, similar footing so that you can say, oh yeah, maybe she is smart. Maybe she can do those things. So I push like having somebody vouch for you is so important, and so many people have done that for me. Um, I will never be, I, I could never be who I am or where I am without so many different folks in Milwaukee and beyond who have just said, hey, I know Kristen, she's cool. I think she's smart. She could probably do it. I don't know, give her the chance. I mean, just literally, they didn't have to use their capital, their social capital, but they did use it on me and it's helped push me somewhere. So I give them, you know, I, I give my mother, I give God the glory first. I give my mother her utmost, all the flowers and the glory for kind of making me the person who I am. But then when I get here in Milwaukee, it's like this village of people who kind of have lifted me up and continue to lift me up. I will never forget that and never act like I didn't have all that help uh, to kind of get where I am. So like with year end coming up, right? Like a lot of times we're in these conversations where we're trying to show like, hey, we're worth, we think we're worth this. And I guess as a black woman in this profession, right? Like what's your approach to, I guess, letting your current place or your previous place? I mean, cause you already talked about like how your negotiation skills weren't that great initially, <laughs> right? So like, I guess, what's your approach now, given that you, you know, you've been tested a few times, like how do you go about it um, when you're thinking about what you bring to the table as a black woman? in this field yeah so um i talk a lot about this with my friends i think number one it's important to know what the what the market is paying and that's difficult right because one people lie uh so much <laughs> if i don't know anything else i know that so many people are not honest about i don't know why money makes people so weird people are not honest about how much money they make either they're going too low or talking too high but yeah. you can never get an honest idea of what they make so i have a friend group and we put together this anonymous survey and like maybe people won't lie where it's this is your industry this is where you how many years you've been practicing this is your background and pedigree here's your practice and this is how much you make and this is what your bonus structure looks like um, again, people could still lie, but I thought maybe they were less likely to do so if it was anonymous. Uh, and what that helped us do was, and this may be, it's probably less than 100 people who've done this, filled this survey out. But what it helped us understand is sometimes we have these conversations about like what we're worth. And I'm like, I think that y'all are, are you sure <laughs> that's what you're worth? That's what I'm always saying. Like, are you sure? I know you feel like it's this big number. You feel like people are making all this money, but people lie. So maybe they actually aren't. Uh, so maybe let's understand what are we really getting? Or if I know that you've been practicing 10 more years than me and you graduated from um, Harvard Law School and you're in a industry, you're in financial services and you do um, privacy, you know, you're, you command a different salary than someone who works in manufacturing 
who went to a lower tier of law school, who's been practicing a least amount of time than you, who did not go to big law, our salaries are different, right? And I think when you look at that in black and white, it helps you be honest with yourself about what you're worth, right? Yeah. So to me, that's kind of yeah. where I start. Like, number one, what's the actual landscape here for me and my practice? Two, I kind of was in that advantage in the last role that I had um, just because I had interviewed at a lot of different companies. So I had interviewed and got job offers at a lot of different places. So I had practice and figuring out, well, one, I know what the market is literally for, for me, for Kristen, not just in the world for attorneys at this practice, but me, because I've negotiated the salary here, here, and there. I've been able to push them. They tell me this is how much they have, but I could push them to a little bit more. So I knew it was possible. Um, so that everybody doesn't get the chance to do that. I don't even recommend always doing it, but I'm glad that I got to do it once uh, because it really gave me the chance to go, okay, when I do command this salary, it's not like, wow, I'm getting over. Cause that's how I used to feel before. If I would get this, like I'm, I'm getting over. It's like, mm, not really because <laughs> 10 jobs offer me something similar. So I'm not yeah. getting over. That's actually what I'm worth. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's hard to say that sometimes. Um, but that's really, that's just what it is. Uh, so my tactic now is to, one, I, I think it's important for folks to always be interviewing. That's not a popular thing to say. And it's not just because, because you're really interested in going somewhere else. Uh, but one, you should keep your skills sharp. Two, it helps you level set where the market is, right? So you can figure out how much of my work constantly by interviewing for different jobs. Because sometimes you may see like, oh, I got a good here. All right, maybe I should just relax. This is I'm doing good in this job. But other times you go, huh, I can command a lot more. Um, secondly, if you do find that you're worth a lot of more, this may be controversial. Um, I don't believe in coming back to your job with a figure unless you really are ready to leave. So I think that is a. I, I don't think really that's that. I don't think that's that controversial. I think that's real because the thing is, like, you could come back to your job and be like, "Yo, I think I'm worth a hundred k more," and they'll uh -huh. be like. You know what? You're good where you are, and uh, we actually been thinking about letting you go. So yep. thank, you. Or, <laughs> thank you. Or they go, here's the extra hundred k, and now they're like, so all right, I already know that you're thinking about leaving next time. So that's I, I'm gonna remember that that mm -hmm. that's that's how you play. Good mm -hmm. good to know. And it doesn't always work like that, right? But um, I don't know. I just like, if you're going to do that, you got to really be ready to go. I don't, someone told me many years ago, never accept the counter offer. Like whatever you do, do not accept the counter offer from your job. Don't do yeah. it. And that mm -hmm. always, that's like seeped in my brain. Uh, so if I say that, it's like, no, I'm probably out the doors. Probably. I mean, there's already always different circumstances where you may change that, but, um, but I think it's important just to know. So, you know, like, I got this new certificate or I got this new degree or I did this new project. Did mm -hmm. that change my worth in the market? Um, and then now I think you just gotta be bullish about like whatever it is. Like I'm not timid about money. Uh, I'm not timid talking about money with my friends. I've gotten very comfortable where like we know how much everybody makes to the point where I could go, you know, they're not paying you enough, like period. Or Actually, you're getting paid a lot, so relax. <laughs> you're like you're doing really well compared to everybody else. So maybe mm -hmm. don't complain so much because let me tell you how the market looks for everybody else. Um, you know, you can command whatever you want. That idea of like what you're worth is about what you think. I just think people should be realistic. And I try to always be realistic with myself uh and not have this this idea of like, oh, I'm worth so much more. Like, am I? I need to really know that and I need some data to back that up. And mm -hmm. then I'll say, all right. Maybe that's a valid point. Maybe I am worth more. But as a black woman, just who I am as a person, I'm not timid or afraid to negotiate or push back or to have those uncomfortable conversations about money. This is my livelihood. I take care of myself. Um, so I am not going to be shy about getting the money that you know the person next to me is making um, to make sure that I have a comfortable living. The, the whole survey. I mean, that's that's genius, right? Like finding a way to have those candid conversations or or get that information. Uh, I, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh -huh. And I'll also say this, like, I'm not the kind of person that is always like, ch like money does not, money is not everything to me. Right. Like 
I, I'm participating in the system of, you know, making money because I that's that's what we're supposed to do, right? We need it to live. Yeah, but I'm game. not a person that's like, I need to be a millionaire, billionaire. Like, that's not, that doesn't move me in life. Um, so I'm about, like, being paid equitably and making sure everybody else around me is too, right? Uh, but also, I'm not one that's, like, always going to be chasing, like, it has to be the next high, the next money, 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 money. That's I am not like that. So that also helps level set. People have to figure out whatever their values, their North Star is and their values and their goals. So for others, it may be every two years I change jobs because there's a different check to, to be grabbed. And that's, I respect that. That's fair. Um, and then there are other people who are like, hey man, I just want to do my job and raise my kids and you know, take a vacation twice a year. And I respect that too. For me, it's I want to be comfortable. Like money to me is, or that's the, it's about stability, right? Like financial stability. And that's how I look at work and your bonus or whatever it is. I look at it as what makes me stable and what makes me comfortable to do the things that I enjoy, balancing that with doing uh, things I enjoy outside of work and inside of work. So yeah, my philosophy is always gonna go back to, it's not everything. I'm not always chasing the biggest check. I have had jobs offer me more money in better places and I didn't take those because that did not move me. You know, that didn't speak to me spiritually. It didn't speak to where I was at in my, at my time at that time in life. Uh, but everybody has to figure out what works for them. And that that's what works for me. So, you know, one thing that I've always admired about you just from afar is uh, one, your, your confidence two, your just innate leadership sort of skills. And um, I've seen that demonstrated through the various organizations that, I've been a part of that you've been head of, such as, you know, the Wisconsin Association of African-American Lawyers. Um, just from afar, you just seem to have this executive presence about you. Um, and I see you as a future leader, future general counsel, what, you know, whatever the case may be, whatever you decide to do. Uh, that's a long way of saying, I guess I'm wondering, where have you really developed that, you know, executive presence and, and any advice for our listeners uh, that are looking to uh, come across more confidently? I appreciate that, Larry. Um, I guess I would say it really goes back to to upbringing, right? We talked a lot about, I think I said that I was the oldest child. Uh, so you kind of get, you cut your teeth with leadership then, right? You are constantly being told, you know, you have to be a good example for your brother. You got to be a good example for your brother. And I was always a, you know, a straight and narrow kid. Like I, whatever you're supposed to do, I followed the rules. A student of the month, you stand in line with your arms crossed, do things you're supposed to do. That was me as a kid. Um, and then, you know, you start playing sports or I started playing sports um, and I was the captain of the cheerleading team or captain of the track team. And I was always the captain. So I think I cut my teeth in leadership young, being the oldest child and just having whatever that is in me to, I think part of it is following the rules, but also wanting to rally the troops and want the best for everybody. Um, and that's how I am as a person to this day, where I want the best for, for everybody, but especially, you know, people that look like me. Um, we can have a lot in common or, or not, you know, I can love you or I can not, not care for you. But if, we, if you look like me, I always want you to be great. I'm not going to speak ill of you. I'm not going to do anything that takes you away from being great because I want you to be great because that feels good to me, regardless of how I may feel about you. Um, so I think that's as a young person, that's kind of where I got some of these leadership skills. And then as an adult, I mean, kind of wall was really instrumental in helping me understand how um, these law organizations work. I don't know if you guys are a part of any, have been in leadership positions with any of the bar organizations, but they're their own beast. Um, you know, managing lawyers is, is a task. Um, and that's essentially what you're doing, managing a lot of different personalities, um, especially people who are maybe lot more seasoned than you in this profession. Uh, so I really just try to exercise good emotional intelligence um, and always remember my values and my North Star. And it's really about other people. I always try to remember this stuff is not about me. Any organization I'm a part of is not about me. I'm a member of it. I'm a part of it. But anything that you ever see me doing, it is not like how can Kristen boost her resume. That is not what it's about. It's the greater good and the collective that's how we rise. That's the only way we're gonna rise. I am just one person. If I become the GC, why do you care about that? Why do y'all care about me, BG, me being the GC? It's like, oh, good for you. But what did that do for you? If I'm mm -hmm. not doing anything for you and other people, then to me, it's like, 
I mean, that's good. That's a good accomplishment, but who cares? So I think because I put people first, because I put the collective first, that helps me with leadership skills. And I don't make it about myself. I, I could care less if it, it's nice if I achieve something. That's good. It makes me feel good momentarily. I feel a lot better if I can look back and say, look at all these other people I helped. That's something that when I die, I'll be like, man, I felt happy about that because uh, I was able to help the collective. It's not. That's it's dope. It sounds like you care more about group success than individual success. And I guess I'm wondering, why is that so important to you? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess it kind of goes back to, I, I feel like it's a, it's, it's how I was raised. Like it's a, a upbringing thing. I think I want to say I'm hesitating because I want to say like, that's, the mindset many black people are raised with in, in a village, right? You have to, the village has to help everybody. Um, it's the job of the village to pull everybody up. So at one point, so this person is stronger than the other. You know, you're a baby, so the older people can help raise the baby. And then the baby grows up and they help the sibling. And then y'all grow up and you take help take care of your mother, your grandmother. Like that's the community of it. So I like to think that's where it comes from. But I don't know. I think it makes me uncomfortable to be so uh, focused on just myself. I don't know. I just that does not bring me joy. It, having something and getting something just does not make me feel that joy compared to everybody. And I think it's because I'm so invested in my people, and I want my people. We it's so much has been taken from us, and we have been denied so many things. It's like imagine if we were not we're not denied these things and we were able to truly rise. I think that's always gonna be more important to me. I am so happy for everybody's success, especially folks who look like me, black women to the utmost, you know, like I am so proud of anything that we do and accomplish. But what I get a little agitated with is the narrative of, well, if you have done that, that that means something. You, you guys have been really successful with this podcast and have been great. And then when you walk around like, well, see what I'm doing for the community, for the black people. It's like, no, you did that for you. Like, let's relax. Like, thank you. And it's nice. And I appreciate you being a role model in a sense of, a, you know, high up there, pie in the sky thing for the youth. That's great. But realistically, calm down and remember that your success is not everybody's success. Um, it can be aspirational or inspirational for other people, and that's awesome. But I often think, and this is our own, this is not even a Black thing, but I'm Black, so like that's my lens, right? It's in the kind of the Black community, but I want to be very clear that this is not just a Black thing. Uh, and uh, Americans are so um, obsessive about wealth and obsessive in this capitalistic culture that they lose their minds and start treating people with money like gods. Like they are almighty, amazing beings and they can do no wrong. Like if you have a lot of money, that means you're so smart and you know everything and you're so wise. And realistically, you mm -hmm. know, plenty of people who have money and they were born into money, it doesn't make you smart. Um, how many people have robbed and pillaged to get their money? It doesn't make you mm -hmm. smart. It may have made you strong or crafty. It doesn't make you smart though. Um, so we start, I don't know, rallying behind people when they have something. And because of that, it creates this false narrative that, well, they had it and I can aspire to be that. And that's all we need to get out and be better. When realistically we have created, and I say we created, because we, the people have created these billionaires, right? Like it's because we're the consumers, uh, whatever product they're peddling, we are the consumers of it. Uh, and then what has that done for us as a collective? Like, please tell me how that has changed Black people for the better, Americans for the better. Like, how has that really helped the collective? It hasn't. And I know that that's, um, I don't know. Again, maybe it's aspirational to think that it's that that's something that, that could happen, that people would care so much to help the collective. But I just want folks to shift their brain and think a little bit more of, it's nice to have money. And it's nice to have wealth. And it's great to have that for your family. It's great to have that as a Black person because so much has been taken from us. So we deserve every little thing that we want to get. Go get it. I, I love that. But please don't confuse that with someone who is in a different circumstance. It's not about that you got yourself, you got it out the mud and you, you know, pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Come on, stop. You can't believe that. 
this is a system that's designed for it to be winners and losers, and you just so happen to win. Mm-hmm. Everybody on this podcast right now is a winner, but I don't ever say like this is I'm a winner by some divine thing. It's like, no, it's a lot of luck. It's a lot mm-hmm. of circumstances. People were in the right circumstances. You were born to the right person in the right space at the right time. The mm-hmm. right person took an interest in you and all of that, a lot of luck. It's some hard work and it's some things that you've done yourself, not to diminish those things, but it's a lot of luck. So at the end of the day, uh, we got to stop acting like people with money are gods because they are not. And like they're so smart because they're not. And I don't think that that's something to always aspire to. And I, and I say that, I want to be real clear, from a, a place of privilege, right? Because I have a little something, so it's easy for me to say that. When you don't have anything, yes, it all seems like I need, you know, I need all of these things. So I have a little something, so I can say if in a comfortable position, like, I don't need to be a billionaire, I would be okay. Mm-hmm. A billion is a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like yeah. a millionaire is a lot of money when you think about it. So you I don't forget about it. You, I mean, because I think we throw the, the term out so often that you uh-huh. forget like how much money that actually is. It's insane. You will never, I, it was so mean. Like, would you, if you got $50 million, you know, would you keep working? I'm like, do y'all know how much $50 million is? <laughs> like, for an individual person. Like, mm-hmm. just for me, 50, after tax, you give me $50 million. Like, are you kidding? That is, I start, I'm thinking I'm going to give, I'm going to give my mom a 10 mil. And mm-hmm. I'm and I'm still going to have an exceptionally amount of, of money to buy a nice house and a vacation house somewhere else and go on trips. Yes, I would still work if that's my answer, if I had $50 million. But I'm just saying, you could do so many different things and be so impactful with that money. So why do we always aspire to have all these dollars? I don't know, especially when they're poor people and folks who need a lot of other things. And we think we need to crowd all this money. Like, the world's going to end. Are y- is it that serious, y'all? Like, mm-hmm. it's not mm-hmm. to me. So building building on that train of thought, I guess I'm just wondering... Uh, you know, as sort of winners, as, you know, p- achievers, like all three of us have achieved in our life. Like, what do you think we should be doing? Obviously, just us making money isn't enough. What do you think we should be doing, uh, you know, as we're navigating these corporate spaces? No, that's a, that's a great question. Um, one, I think it's our job to speak up for people who may not either be sitting at the table or they don't have the... Um, desire or ability or acumen to speak up in these different areas. Um, So when I say that, I mean, like, let's say at work, and you know that there are people who uh, may be getting overlooked and you have a little bit of power to raise their profile. And it sounds like such a simple, basic thing, but if you can help somebody else make a couple more dollars in their household or bring up a couple other people to different levels, that changes the landscape immensely for them. It changes the landscape in the city about what you can and can't buy and where you can and cannot live. So that's like a really small thing, using whatever social capital that you have um, and expending it on the right people. Uh, and when I say right people, I don't mean people who are just like you. I think we, we get into that weird thing too. We don't have to be just like Kristen and align exactly with my values. Like if you're a hard worker and you got the moxie and you can do X, Y, Z, then hey, if, you, if I can use some social capital to get you somewhere, that's a big thing. Um, I think investing in our communities, and I, I think uh, you guys have talked about this a lot with other people who are a lot smarter on this than I am, but investing in the communities is so important. And I don't mean investing in your community and then just, you know, we just swapped out a white place for a black one and we're doing the exact same thing. We're hiking up the prices and people can't live here. It's like, no, understanding, okay, you're going to, buy in a historically black neighborhood where most people own their houses right now um, when grandma dies and then she leaves it to the family and they maybe they sell you the house and then you jack up the prices because oh the market can command that yeah but then no one else who looks like me can own it now you have different people who moved in and you're changing the whole neighborhood why are we doing that i know why we're doing it because capitalism because you just made a quick buck but what did that do for the collective of this neighborhood? You are changing the thread of the neighborhood by doing that. Um, so I think we have to be really intentional about it. And and I know that's hard. I know that's so hard because now we're talking about your individual dollar that I'm impacting. I get it. Uh, but I think that's something that we need to be a little bit more cognizant of when we are investing in our communities. So one thing, I mean, I think that's all, that's all spot on. 
Uh, one thing that, you know, I've had this conversation with friends and one thing that has come up is uh, this tension between, you know, coming from a culture of poverty where you just, you, you didn't grow up with much and now you are achieving and making money. Um, but you also do want to use your voice to impact change, but you don't want to come off, come across as the angry black man or, or whatever. Right. Um, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate that, that tension of uh, trying to uh, impact change while also not trying to mess up your bag, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know, Larry. I mean, but do y'all know? <laughs> because, I mean, I'm always still trying to figure that out. It's a, that's a day-to-day struggle. That tension is, I think, probably always going to be that one foot in, one foot out kind of struggle that we all have. Um, as a Black woman, I think maybe, perhaps, I know how to, I'm a little bit more aware of it, because everyone does the, you know, the stereotype of being the emotional, angry woman, and now you add black to it. Um, so now I snap my neck and pop my fingers when I've never done that in my life at work. But people react to you in that way, like you do that. Um, so maybe I'm a little bit more cognizant of it. Uh, but I think it's about, I don't know, understanding the political landscape that you are in. Uh, and when I say political, I mean like corporate politics political. And mm. if you understand your company, your community, and you understand that language, right? You understand that culture, uh, you know how to speak within it. And I don't mean change yourself, because I would never say that. Like I am who I am, you know, talking to you guys or I'm talking at work. Like this is, I am who I am. Um, but the language you use, you know, you don't talk the same way at church like you talk to your friends on Saturday night, right? You don't talk to your mom like you necessarily talk to your boss, right? Like there are different ways that you speak. You're always you, we're always who we are, but that language doesn't resonate the same way if you're not speaking the same language in that culture, in that community. Mm -hmm. um, so I think understanding that is like step one. And then when you build that trust in those relationships, people are a lot more willing to hear you out. And then also you get smarter on the whole, like not messing your back up, who you can expend that social capital on, right? Like mm -hmm. what you can and cannot say, how you don't, you don't want to mess something up. So, you know, if you come in hot like this, folks are going to be like, I don't even hear you. Versus if you come in with this kind of energy, you know, I think we all have probably seen this in the workplace. Um, people come in a little too hot and they burn themselves where people do not want to hear what they have to say. Mm -hmm. And what they said, yeah. you may even agree with it. You know, like, yeah. I, I feel it, but that's not how I would have said it. Ugh, now you got to burn <laughs> all your little relationships up and you can't come back from that. Um, so I think it's like step one, understanding that political playground, that corporate playground, community playground, and then playing within it and getting people to... Um, I don't know if you establish that trust and real true relationships. I don't mean this like a weird manipulative way. I mean like true trust, real relationships with people, the powers that be, it helps you, it helps push your agenda along a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that makes, uh, that makes a ton of sense. So what made you start brunch of professionals and, you know, just explain what brunch of Prof professionals is. Uh, yes, sure. So, Russia Professionals, we are a, it's two of us, me and one of my friends from law school, uh, Magda Fesahaya. We started this organization back in like 2015, 2016. Um, and essentially it started with us doing monthly brunches in Milwaukee or kind of Metro Milwaukee restaurants. Uh, the goal is twofold. One, we're putting together a group of professional women from various backgrounds, you can come from anywhere and buy a ticket. And then we're curating these special menus at these restaurants to get, to kind of help funnel business into the restaurants, but also to help create these relationships or this camaraderie with various women from different areas that otherwise you wouldn't talk to. So what made me start it was because I moved here, right? Spent three years, I told you I was kind of had my head in the book, not really going out. And then even when I did find my tribe, we were all lawyers. And that conversation is so boring talking to lawyers all the time, personally for me, or law students, the same I'm old, saying. like you yeah. constantly get into these law conversations, like, ooh, boring, what else is going on? So how do you meet other people? It's really difficult to do that. So there were other organizations where I would go to their events, 
and they did a good job with like the parties or the bars, those type of events. But I'm like, I don't want to do that all the time. I told you I was tapped out of, I lived my full party life, like teenage years through college. Like, and big I crowds, had big crowds. You're like, yo, good. Yeah, not big crowds and just like, it's loud. I can't like, that's so loud in here. And it's like, how do you meet other women, right? Not at the bar. It's always a man trying to talk to you. And it's not the same. You're not mm -hmm. finding a girlfriend to hang out with at the club, you know? So I was like, well, what's another way we could build that, have that relationship building, particularly for someone who's like me, who's a little bit more introverted, where the crowd isn't too large and you're gonna make me talk. Because you, you can put me in a room with a bunch of people I don't know. I'm a little better at this now as a working person, but even back then I was more like, I wouldn't talk. I, if you talk to me, I talk to you, but I would never initiate any kind of conversation because I felt so awkward. So this is, we set these brunches up, we cap the amount of women. It's usually, I think, 15 tops. Some restaurants, and we would say like eight to 10, but we were capping how many people could come so that it wasn't awkward and you wouldn't do this thing where you would come with your friend and only y'all talk. We would ask questions um, or we would have like a discussion to force everyone to speak. Mm. Again, curated menus. I love food, I'm a big foodie. So I'm like, we're picking the special kind of dishes that we're going to have at each event, the specialty menu, sometimes specialty cocktails, sometimes we'd have like bottomless mimosas or whatever. And then we sit and we kind of have this girl talk and we would pick a different subject each meeting. Um, again, like I said, they started monthly. So sometimes they would be like, you know, financial literacy or, um, you know, moving as a woman in a corporate space or negotiating your salary or um, work-life balance. They would just all be these different things that impact women uh, and how we can kind of work through them as professional women. So we literally just started like an event, right? And a website and told a couple people, like, what do you think? And they told their friends and people started coming. I mean, there are women at the company I work at right now, that I work at right now, who I've known for years because they came to the first brunch or they, they come to every brunch. Literally, I've known them my realtor, I know her from the brunch. I've known her like seven, eight years from mm -hmm. the brunch. She came one day, she saw it on Eventbrite and she showed up and she sold me and like five other girls in that group a house. So it also infuses business. If you have or a business owner, we say, hand out your business card. Like you're a lawyer, you got a private practice, hand out your business card. Um, one of the women who's come to a bunch of our brunches had a birthday party yesterday. And I see it's like four girls from the brunches at her party. She's mm. formed these relationships with them. Like slowly just coming to brunch. I mean, you, you do become friends if you come to a brunch every month, looking at the same girls, you get all dressed up, you sipping your drink, you get cute pictures. Like it's supposed to be fun. It's camaraderie. It's a good time. You can come by yourself. You can come with a friend, but you're going to leave and feel like, oh, this was a welcoming, fun environment. So I am not doing them once a month anymore because I don't have time to do them once a month. Yeah. But when I do get to do them, I love them. They're so much fun. And it's such good energy and positive vibes. Like you can't beat it. It's probably my favorite thing to do in the city. It's a good time. And it's brunch. It's brunch. It's brunch. <laughs> yeah, Eat all the good food, drink all the drinks. You can't beat it. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the last things, so in one of your, one of the articles I saw, you had, said about uh, you you were talking about your your service and you talked about uh this quote from tony morrison where you said you know if someone had if if you have some power then your job is to empower somebody else and i think i wanted to get like i, I guess I, I guess i wanted to ask like the importance of mentorship and why you think that quote is so powerful well first tony morrison is the goat um she has so many powerful quotes like that. Like all of her books read like quotes, quotes in that way. But that resonated she's, she's with the Drake. Story. She's a Drake of uh, literally uh, like of authors. All your all your Instagram pictures. Yeah, Morrison. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> she is. Uh, I think that quote resonated with me, kind of with everything I've been saying in this this podcast. Like as a collective, it's important for us to rise. It's nice for you to get something or for me to get something, that's cool, that's great. But I always go back to what does that do for the community and for, you know, we, it sounds morbid, but we leave this earth, right? Like we all die and then somebody else is left here. So what did you leave for somebody else? Yeah. And that's what I think about that quote. Like, what am I leaving 
for someone else. My accolades cannot be what I did for myself. And they can't even be what you've done just, you know, for your family. It has to be, what did you leave? What's that legacy? And the legacy isn't always money or a building or whatever. It's like what you left inside of people. And that's what mentorship is to me. Like, mm. if I could instill something else, whether it be um, something tangible, like a scholarship or money or books or whatever, or it's advice, or it's a, I don't know, a thought, even if it's not my exact same thought, maybe something I said kind of inspired something else. Uh, that's important. That can mean something that can change the world. So we're here, like, right, we're adults, we're doing whatever we're doing in this world right now. But the kids behind us are going to be here and to have to take care of us. So we got to inspire them and always be mentoring them. Uh, I think that is part of our job as lawyers. That's our job as black professionals where we always have to be bullish about mentorship um, and it's not only kids who want to go to law school or young lawyers it's whomever is in your community whoever's around you it's your friends kids it's whoever's next to you like that is our job that's what we have to do to care about again going back to the village analogy um, caring about our community and caring about the people around us to make sure that we build the best world possible in uh, the best humans possible, like we I mean, just good people. And if we're, if you're a good person, then kind of instill that into the next generation of people. And that's what I'm always trying to do as best as possible. I'm not perfect, and it's always things I can learn. And it's so many things that my mentees teach me. Or I'm like, you know what, y'all are smart on that. I need to get better. Thank you. You've taught me something new. So mentorship is huge. It's been super impactful and helpful. Shout out to every mentor that I've ever had. I'm not going to name them on this podcast. I don't know if they want to be named, uh, but they have been so impactful and helpful to me. And I just want to do that for other people.